Hello everyone, it's Paul here with some exciting news. I'm absolutely delighted that Series 4 of The Past Podcast is brought to you in partnership with the wonderful Chef Works, outfitting chefs, kitchens and front of house all around the world. Chef Works offer a collection of great uniforms, so to check out their full range, visit chefworks.co.uk. On with the show. Hello podcast fans, I've got an oldie but a goodie. So a little while ago, um, unfortunately a little longer than I'd like normally, but nevertheless it's a good time because Andrew Wong, who is the Michelin star chef of A. Wong, has recently opened Kim's in London. And about a year ago I was asked to go down and meet Andrew uh, with a lady called Mukta, who, who was working with him about this kind of history of Chinese food. Uh, this is a really, really interesting interview. And again, something a little bit different, but really, really interesting. A lot about the history of Chinese food in, in this podcast. So I really hope you enjoy. I feel like, it's like it was like a first date question, but like who approached who? Actually, it was on Twitter, wasn't it? Because I was trying to re- remember this. You and, came for um, lunch. No, you 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 found so me on Twitter, and because um, Andrew's background—I mean, he he's he's a bit of an eclectic class. But like, you had a—you were doing a science degree, weren't you, in Oxford? You stopped that, got into anthropology at LSE, and so when he contacted me, I put on my uh, Twitter profile anthropology of food, and the first thing he said to me was like, "Like a troll? That doesn't exist." <laughs> What's going Did on? I? Yeah. And so, I've and so, never seen something like that, surely. <laughs> and you know, that dynamic's kind of stayed because it's been what's really been fun about working with Andrew is that um, he's quite sceptical. And I quite like working with sceptical people because they ask really good questions. And so, yeah, that's I think that's how we met. And then I came for lunch. With, and I with brought, um, what's your friend? Who, yeah, a part of the Yao Empire. Yeah. And um, I brought him all sorts of material. I was like, listen, it's a real thing. And look, I can I, look at this stuff. And it was all sorts of old recipes and things like this. And uh, I didn't realise at that time he was thinking about, you know, history and, and all this kind of stuff. And so we ended up sparking off a bit of... Um, I don't know, a bit of a nice dialogue, really. It was a uh, yeah, yeah, quite informal at the beginning, and mm. now it's become a bit more like yeah, let's let's do something with it. Yeah. Was it something you were interested in, and Andrew sort of finding a bit about what you wanted to do? No, what you were cooking. I, what, did I really approach it? Yeah, yeah. God, that makes me feel really good. <laughs> Proactive. Proactive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I didn't do very much studying doing anthropology at LSE, but I do remember studying about the anthropology of food. And that's the only thing that I can vaguely remember. <laughs> that and Levi Strauss, who oh, I yeah, still don't understand. And <laughs> <laughs> Mukta's been trying to explain it to me for about a year now. <laughs> I still don't get it. But I do remember the anthropology of food, and that, that was the one thing that stuck with me for three years. Mm. It was... Um, and it's, it's something that you don't necessarily think about consciously all the time until... Someone like an anthropologist who has a mm. lot of spare time uh, <laughs> <laughs> either, either finds relationships or sees relationships. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the more, the more you read about it and the more you, you understand about it, I think the more you begin to believe it. Mm. And I said, most of said I'm, I'm very, very skeptical. Mm. So I'm always thinking, is this true mm. or did an anthropologist make it up? <laughs> um, 
For what purpose? <laughs> well, no, well, no, to because, sell books. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I think academics do have a tendency to, to do that. And I, I don't think only academics are guilty of this. I think chefs are guilty of this as well, where they, um, they live in a bubble mm. and then they, they surround themselves with people who also live within this bubble and they convince themselves that things are true. Um, when if you ask anyone else, like they'll go, maybe it's true, maybe it's not. Mm. Um, and I remember, I remember going to a, a very famous restaurant with two friends that I grew up with, and we're in a in a car park, and they're talking. About, I said, "Oh, this is a development kitchen," and blah, blah blah. And they both looked at me and went, "Mate, what are you talking about? It's just a garage." <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you you know you, you kind of think, "Oh shit, yeah, it's it's kind of true." And it, it, the other story I always tell to with anthropology is that I remember getting taught by this guy, and um, he he was writing about. Um, I can't remember a people in in Africa. It's, I was really listening because I don't even yeah. know where in Africa. Um, <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> but he was talking about this ritual where um, they talk about a spirit within the community comes out and chases the children around during a festival during the year. And so we were asking, so what actually happens when this spirit comes out to chase the children around the forest? And he said, "Well, um, it's a spirit. It comes out. Like, what does it look like?" And then we saw a photo of it. It's a dude with like, a bed sheet <laughs> running around the forest. And so we're looking at it like, so who was underneath the, the sheet? And everyone's, he was like, oh, no, no, it was a spirit. Blah, blah, blah. I was like, no, who was under the sheet? Like, no, it was a spirit. And I think anthropologists, sometimes they genuinely convince themselves because they spend so much time in the, some communities that they have to sometimes over-believe it more than the community itself to try to, I don't know, maybe validate themselves that they've somehow infiltrated the inner psyche of these people or, or what it might be. Mm. But I'm very sceptical. I'm like, mate, it's someone with a sheet over their head. Like, if it's not you, it's someone of a guy that you were having lunch with that day. Um, but he refused to give up. He was like, no, 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 it's the spirit, blah, blah. Um, and so that's the kind of way I, I, I approach most. And it's the same with... With the food aspect, it's like, well, you know, anthropologists talk about food all the time and you'll read loads and loads and loads about relationships within X, Y, and Z and why the meaning of this and the meaning of that and how it's, it, it somehow organises the structure of the people and the community. And blah, blah, blah. But if you ask them a very simple question as well, what did they eat? What did it taste like? Um, like eight out of ten times, it'll be, I'm not sure, never tasted it maybe. Would that be correct? Yeah, uh, yeah. I think. I mean, it's it depends, right? Because uh, with this historical research, though, when you're looking for his recipes in history, right? You you can like you've got a recipe suddenly. You've got it from like 1700. You've got a lovely recipe, and so what I um, and for me as an anthropologist, sometimes just having that printed recipe, and often it looks quite like the recipes now in normal cookbooks, right? So you've got a list of ingredients at the top, and you've got a set of instructions of how to cook it into a dish. Um, and it's pretty much standard, right? So I think, okay, that tells me a lot about a lot, right? I can think, okay, people are having this in their homes, they know how to do that, they know how to chop it in certain ways, and then I'll send it on to Andrew and go, look, <laughs> something to think about, something to... And, he, and he'll have a lot of questions about that that make me think about why I was thinking that recipe was just, you know, it's an inert piece of data, and I've taken 
taken it on with lots of meaning. And he's like, actually, how do you even cook it? Mm. And that pushes me to think about anthropology in a totally different way. And I, I guarantee that if anthropologists and, and chefs work together, we'll have a richer idea of food history. Definitely, definitely. Because this is what Andrew does. He pushes me and says, okay, all that knowledge about culture up here and then this recipe, tell me what you can tell, you can tell me how you fill the gaps in. Mm. And that's what I end up doing. I scurry away and try and fill as many gaps as possible. Well, I suppose what my thoughts were about it is I guess like Chinese food in particular must be one of these ones that is so steeped in history, so so steeped in legend, and it's so ancient, if you like, that there must be a lot of that where you're having to modernise it. And for you, obviously, as a, a Michelin star chef now as you are, part of the appeal of you is that it is modern, it is current. So to go to someone like an anthropologist in history, what were you sort of hoping to get out of it? Well, first of all, you have to remember that a lot of the written records don't exist anymore. Um, so actually a lot of the record records uh, were just destroyed 60, 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and uh, you know, what is left is very open to interpretation. And, and Mukta will, will explain to you after, like, these recipes that you get, I wouldn't exactly call them highly detailed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, because, again, is, there, is a, there is a cultural... Um, there's a cultural stigma about Chinese chefs and that, that, the one thing is that they're highly secretive like historically speaking and even now um, there isn't this sharing caring attitude um, and that that's cultural I'm not going to lie about it it's very much this whole thing about you know it, it kind of you know you watch a lot of movies and they, they talk about it in, in terms of like martial arts and kung fu but with regards to cooking it was exactly the same you know when, when chefs knew something they're not going to go and pass it on to anyone um, so what was your question? I was saying, what were you sort of hoping to get out of, you know, going to this sort of more historical background? So it sounds like you were hoping to learn more. Absolutely. I think ultimately it's about learning, right? I mean, we're chefs, we, we live lives of, of, I wouldn't say monotony, but, um, but repetitive, mm. um, repetitive, what's the name? I forgot my English. Routine, yes, repetitive routine, process, right? Yeah. Every day is pretty much the same. So actually, you know, if it wasn't for um, conversing with Mokuto and sharing ideas, actually, I would probably very quickly end up being the type of chef that I was describing earlier on in basically just sitting within a bubble, mm. talking to other chefs about very similar stuff um, and maybe losing sight of, of semi-reality. Mm. Um, but, you know, because it's... It, Chinese gastronomy has got 5,000 years worth of history. As I said, but not a lot of it is documented, but it is there in, in small snippets, mm. in various forms. There's 5,000 years. That's a lot longer than a lot of uh, other cultures. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, if you can tap into just a tiny bit of it and, and show people um, or show guests how rich Chinese food is and, and how rich Chinese gastronomy is, I think it's it's the easiest way to kind of turn on its head this general perception about Chinese food in the Western world where where still to this day is very much still associated with being kind of um, cheapish mm. um, unskilled mm. and um, kind of the, the, the meal of choice after a heavy night mm. um, it's like fast food it's like fast food it culture, is fast food it? exactly yeah. and, and you, you can't change that overnight um, and I don't, I don't claim to do it something better than other Chinese chefs, 
but we're just doing something a little bit different. Mm. So, you know, what we do is that we, we, we lay it all out and go, well, this is what we found and this is our interpretation of it. Now, how you take that is your choice. You, know, you might think it's pretentious shit. That's up to you. Um, or you might think, wow, you know, that's, that sparked off a lot of curiosity, which is what we hope it will, which is what I hope it will anyway. Mm. Um, you know, and, and you know, it is, it, these are like the first baby steps in, in trying to change a perception, you know, within the UK and within Europe, actually, about Chinese food. Mm. Um, and Chinese food in the UK, it's been around for over 100 years now. So we're, we're only making the first steps now to trying to change that preconception. We've still got 100 years to catch up on. Um, and technology can, can accelerate the process a bit. Um, and this open sharing community that we have now between uh, fields, so between uh, history, between uh, chefs, between you know, many other forms of art and, and, and social history and social arts, um, that, that allows the process to, to accelerate. But still, there's a lot of time to catch up on. I wonder if as well if it's one of those things where because people are so familiar with that cuisine, they have like a preconception of how it should be. So, you know, there's some really creative restaurants in, in the country and you think, well, I don't know what I'm going to get. Whereas if you say Chinese, you know, you go in oh, spring rolls, I don't know, crispy seaweed, Peking duck, I don't know. But, you know, that's your... Yeah. I'm, I'm racking up my Chinese order for later, but <laughs> you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And, and I think what you're describing, there's there's a whole study on that type of Chinese food. And if you to look at it, if you look at British Chinese food, you know, since early 1900s, um, there's a massive kind of um, study and... and, and and relationship between how Chinese food has evolved and the way the Chinese community within the UK has has evolved, right? That's in, right. In, yeah, yeah. Um, and I don't think we necessarily. We're not, I don't think we're necessarily dealing with that um, here. Um, but inadvertently, if we have a lot of success with this, then it will. I, I think that it would. I hope that it would help reshape the next. 100 years in the way people perceive Chinese food and it, it will have to because Chinese politi- China politically has become a, uh, an international global um, superpower um, so it can't be ignored anymore you know you look at many many countries you look at the whole of the hospitality industry now it's bending over backwards to try and uh, gain access to this Chinese demographic who are now free to travel and have more money than um, a lot of people from the UAE and a lot of people from the, the Eastern Bloc um, and so this community, this demographic will shape the way hospitality is um, is unfolded in, in the next few years. So what I've asked you to do is come up with a menu of five dishes and we'll go through them one by one. Uh, you tell me why you've chosen it. And then Mukta, if you've got some sort of interesting stories mm-hmm. behind them, if you've worked together on some of those sort of recipes where you found them, that would be great. So we can sort of enrich mm. your menu. Cool. So we'll go through them one by one. Uh, and obviously I'll have some questions as well. Sure. So if you could tell us what your first dish is. So the first one is the most staple. So the, the heart of dim sum, which mm. Mukta's going to explain to you. And it's a, in, in, in Cantonese, it's a hagao, which means a prawn dumpling. Um, but as I said, Mukta will explain that like, this choice of starch and um, the way the dish is put together is very specific to a particular part mm. of China. And dim sum is quite specific, right? Actually, um, us, we've been talking about this with Andrew, is that actually dim sum as a category is really, really flexible. Mm. Like, um, you think it's all about Cantonese food and down south and whatnot, but every region in China, and China's a massive country, 
every region's got its own dim sum tradition. They might not say dim sum, but they mean sort of uh, small snacks with tea or, you know, in that kind of environment. And so actually what you'll find is, um, and I was saying this to Andrew, you know, there are people who have written sort of 500 years ago and they've listed maybe 2,000 different types of dim sum. And that's only in one province in the north. So it's a it's it's fascinating. I mean, a lot of the recipes and the what they what they're even called are lost to history, which is frustrating, obviously. But um, it makes you think about dim sum in a totally different way because then you think, okay, so it's not just about steamed or deep fried or baked, and it's not the fifty things that you usually find in a in a restaurant in London, for example. It could be so much more. Um, so yeah, um, but hargal is one of the more basic like it's been around since probably the Tang dynasty so you know for the last sort of 140 uh, 1400 years basically it's a it's sort of tea house staple it was uh yeah uh, um in the south it's created with sort of a rice um, rice flour um cover and it sort of sort of speaks to southern agricultural like um traditions so um it's very much hargao as andrew presents it's very much a southern dim sum dish and you'll have restaurants in london that literally just serve dim sum entirely pretty much because that's the that's the amount of variety there is in that category it's almost like a subcategory of food right it's it's one of those things that have uh, basically translated well, uh, has been transported well with Cantonese chefs over several, well, over a century to London. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's just embedded here in a way that um, other regional cuisines are probably um, only now trying to uh, kind of yeah, copy, I guess. Or um, I think it has, it, has, it has a very clear, distinct. Um, what is a messaging, but a clear identity. When people think of dim sum, there's a very clear image yeah. of what they see that to be. And and from what I've noticed, the, the regional Chinese cuisines that seem to have the most success are the ones that have a clear identity. Yeah. So you, again, when you look at the, 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 the current um, popularity of Citronese cuisine, I don't think that... Um, Citrus cuisine, anything better than kind of Shanghainese cuisine or northern Chinese cuisine. But when you when you taste it, there's a very distinct set of pl- flavor profiles that people automatically associate with it. Um, and when I was in Citron, I can tell you, not everything contained citron, peppercorn, and chili. Um, but people are very clear and very very quick to make that association. And because they can make that quick association, they understand it very quickly, and then that adds to the rise of the popularity of it. And it's the same with dim sum. You know, they get it. Sunday, mostly Sundays, uh, you sit around a table with family and friends and you get loads of small bites. That is a very, very clear, clear visual that people have when they associate dim sum um, with uh, their, their, their normal kind of way of eating Chinese food. Um, and the thing Mukta told me that was really interesting, which is that dim sum, the food is the accompaniment to the tea. Historically, mm, that's yeah, right. Historically, right? yeah. Yeah, so, and, and actually, only recently I've started looking into a lot more tea. And I spent like a day in a tea shop the other day in Hong Kong <laughs> trying to basically understand <laughs> what was going on when there was about 15,000 different types of tea surrounding me. Um, and I think it was, again, once you jump into that world, just like you could jump into the world of wine, for example, mm. you begin to understand how deep it is. And then the, the depth of it, obviously... Um, is exemplified here in the fact that the food is accompanied to the tea, not the tea mm. being accompanied to the food. Um, 
And I think that says a lot, actually, about mm. about the tea-food relationship. Mm. Um, and also the origins of dim sum. You know, they're meant to be light. They're not meant to fill you up, necessarily. Um, and the hagao, the hagao and the silmaya, the, the two... Yeah, they go together, yeah. The, the, in the very first records of, of tea houses, mm. those are like the, the staples. Yeah. Um, the very first two dim sums that were ever um, really served. I believe with guys walking around the tea house with, yeah. with them strapped to their strapped around exactly. their necks exactly think about a cigarette girl in the 50s you know in the cinema <laughs> with the tea with the, <laughs> actually with the dim sum randomly <laughs> and then there'll be another pourer of tea so it's basically a way to drink as much tea as you can awesome. um, and sort of palate cleanse which is why the hargao sumai becomes so standardised mm. whereas the tea is like you know there's so many varieties it's, it's a real sort of like swap in your mind about what's important and what isn't yeah. and I think as a, as a chef you know, that was the thing that really stuck with me because I've always thought, you know, all right, maybe we can we can take it off the menu or maybe we can we can do something with this. But then you realise actually it, it's it's historically um, and culturally such an important part of the dim sum repertoire. There's certain things that you shouldn't take take off, and I think what we've done with it, um, the hagao, is that we we slightly changed it. And I think that the the thing I always used to question about hagao is that when there's three in a basket and just say there's only Say there's four of you at the table, you have to order two baskets, which means someone has to eat a double one, which is fine. Normally me. Um, say normally me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but the, the thing about hagao is that texturally, it's, it's quite soft. Mm-hmm. There's no real contrast to it. I mean, it, they, in Chinese vocabulary, they talk about the crunchiness coming from the prawn, which again is a, a linguistic... Um, idiosyncrasy mm. for Chinese language because mm. uh, no one in the Western world would ever consider a prawn being crunchy but it, that is the bite element to the, the hagao mm. and then the pastries obviously because it's made of a, a combination of wheat, potato and, and tapioca starch it's quite gelatinous um, which is culturally specific again so the, the thing that I wanted to change about it I wanted to give it a bit of um, contrast mm. so flavour profile wise I didn't want to have that samey same kind of um, a flavour to it so what we do now with the hagao is that we make a very standard one with exactly the same recipe that we were taught um, in Hong Kong but we add a tiny bit of sweet chilli sauce to it and on top of that we just put a cloud of, of, of rice vinegar foam um, and all those MasterChef haters out there always talk talk about foams and stuff but I think this is one example where actually uh a foam really serves as a purpose. Mm. It's basically a sauce which has been aerated to make it lighter because ultimately a dim sum is meant to be light, but it adds an, a really nice kind of citrus note to it. Um, and you go through any other cuisine, you know, fish, there'll be a citrus note to it. But with Chinese food, actually, there's a very... Mukta will probably tell me otherwise, but there's, there's very <laughs> little of this kind of um, seafood and citrus uh, counterbalancing. Mm-hmm. Um and so this is as close as get using rice vinegar because rice vinegar we use a lot in Chinese cuisine. Mm. Uh, and I, I think it works really well with this particular dish. Awesome. Let's uh, let's talk about the second one then. Let's move on to the second dish on, uh, on your menu. Awesome. Do you know which one you've chosen? Oh, the, the, the swallow's nest. Yes, that's right. So the swallow's nest, the inspiration came from something that Mukta sent me. Um, it was a, I think it was... Um... A, a sort of a menu, wasn't it? Or a sort of a list of um, items from uh, something served to the emperor back in the day yeah. from the 1700s. 
And um, yeah, so sometimes it's a recipe, sometimes it's just the name of a dish. And that will set Andrew off in terms of um, what what's possible to do with it. Because... Um, names of Chinese dishes, especially when it comes to imperial, so back in the day with dynasties and, and emperors, um, they're quite flowery language and they won't necessarily describe specifically um, what the dish contains or what, what you're expecting to see on the plate. So, um, so it's a, so in some ways, even with a name, you have to do a lot of it. Well, you have to do a lot of interpreting anyway, <laughs> but um, the name itself can be a bit of a misnomer, send you in a different direction. So this one's about swallow's nest, right? The recipe said swallow's nest and smoked duck. That's pretty much all it said. Mm. Now, in Chinese cuisine, um, uh, swallow's nest, a bird's nest, usually it's um, harvested um, off off into the South China Seas um, on these uh, in these coastal islands and sent to um, China dried, um, cleaned and dried, and then they're, it's put into soups. It's a really, it's a very expensive ingredient. Um, so it's not often um, eaten. Right. Uh, it's kind of kept to special occasions and stuff. And it's, the taste is... It's more about texture to the soup, isn't it? Um, so um, there's a certain tradition about having bird's nest soup um, and um, and the way it looks is, you know, if you talk to another Chinese person, they'll be able to describe it. And it's just part of the cultural memory and part of the cultural scene right now. But we want, but you wanted to take it in a different direction. Um, and we, we've been talking a little bit about, you know, what the menu looks like. And in that same menu of 14 other dishes that were served to the emperor on that same day, you know, a dish of, of birds, of swallow nest, it's not a bowl, right? There's, there's no kind of soup element to it. There's other soups on the menu, right? So there's a bowl of clear broth, but there's a dish of... So already you're thinking, do you know what? It might not actually be... A bird, like it might not actually be what we think it is. It could be a replica uh, made of some other kind of material that looks like a bird nest that actually sits in a dish rather than in a soup in a bowl. Mm-hmm. So that got you thinking. Well, because I think we have need to kind of clarify, like a bird's, well, a swallow's nest, or, or sometimes they're called bird's nest um, on, on menus now. Um, it's basically swallow saliva, uh, which has then been... Uh, dried, not even dried. So the, it's, they're, they're so expensive because people need to abseil up into caves <laughs> in order to get this mm. this swallow saliva. Um, and then after it's treated and, and dried, uh, and what's the best way of describing it? It looks like it looks like a white fungus mushroom. I think is yeah. the best way to describe it. Dried, and then you have to go take it through a process to reconstitute it, uh, rehydrate it um, before you use it. I mean, Cantonese-wise. The most classic way of serving it is as a dessert. Actually, it's it's in a in a really kind of sweet gingery broth, and normally it might contain like other root vegetables in. Um, again, the perception of dessert has to be slightly um, re-explained when it comes to Chinese desserts. Um, um, and and most importantly, it it has real cultural um, significance. I think, and, and that's that's one thing. That is really rich within Chinese gastronomy. Thing the, the, the ingredients that have are really high up in social hierarchy. Um, and I was doing a talk last week, and we were talking to kids, uh, culinary students, and I was trying to explain to them that, uh, that the one thing that has changed over the past 10, 15 years in Western cuisine is that, that there's now been a kind of equaling out. I call it ingredients communism, where where there's no longer this idea that that 
truffles are really expensive and they're better than apples or or um you know a really really expensive piece of fish isn't really necessarily better than a mackerel which costs a fraction of the price um and i was trying to explain to these culinary students that that actually you know the one thing that they need to learn actually is although there is deep cultural significance behind ingredients within china it's unexplained and there's no particular reason why some ingredients are are are, are said uh, to be more valuable and the value is completely arbitrary um and swallow's nest is one of those things again like sharks and again is completely arbitrary the value um it's not related to the cost of um getting it necessarily it's not necessarily just about um the availability of it sometimes it is just cultural relevance mm. Mm. Um, and swallow's nest is a prime example of that and it's something that is quite i guess pushes the boundaries of the dino if you sort of explain it like that especially with these old sort of historical dishes there must be some ones that it's just way beyond what we would expect now totally um and in fact when andrew's talking about the first chinese restaurants that appeared um back in the day you know i think everyone did try those those chefs did try to put uh, bird's nest soup <laughs> as it is on the menu um and i'm not sure it was it was as um popular as the other dim sum items for western <laughs> diners and in fact i think in the first the first time it appeared was sort of um in the 1880s um you know we used to have these massive world fairs where we used to bring all the world in um and uh, and you'd be able to visit earl's court and uh, walk around the um all the displays and the stalls and be able to eat all this exotic food and i think they even try they tried to bring it in then um people in hong uh, the sort of british colonial um guys from hong kong tried to bring it in then and it was just still thought was too exotic so i, I don't know i mean i think probably that cultural bias is still prevalent today um yeah, i think as a chef actually the uh, the way i look at it now is that it's important not to forget that these ingredients exist. Yeah. I don't think necessarily they have to be prepared in the same way and I don't think necessarily they have to be used all the time. I like I don't think I don't think shark's fin is necessary in gastronomy any way shape or form. But I think the idea of it is important. So if you can create a dish that creates the same textural values um as a shark's fin then I don't think there's any particular problem with it. Um I don't think you need to use it. It's it's completely irrelevant. But I think if you can create that rich ham stock and you can still get the the, the gelatinous kind of uh, noodle aspect to it that Sharksman brings to a dish, um, then I think it, it, I wouldn't necessarily call it you know, mock Sharksman soup, actually, because what we're still trying to do is show that Sharksman was an ingredient that was used within the Chinese gastronomy. And, and that's the important part. And it's the same with Swallow's Nest. Um, I don't think necessarily that we have to go and spend a thousand pound a kilo more more than a thousand pound a kilo wow. I think at the moment uh, to go and get sh- um, swallows nest but I think it's important that guests understand well, that's what would that, that would have happened and, and yeah. there's this ingredient called swallows nest that, that is made from saliva of a bird um, and so so our our interpretation of it isn't using swallows nest at all but to me it exemplifies um, what I would perceive mm. as an image of what I what i see a swallow's nest being um for our guests it, it's very hard to describe because mm. it, it looks like a nest but it has a smoke duck aspect to it which is described in the recipe but at the same time i don't know why i associate swallow's nest as having um seafood 
what kind of fishy kind of tones to it. It's supposed to have that. It's seafood in in China, isn't it? It's considered seafood because it's harvested on the cliff face. Yeah. And oh, it swallows right? themselves. It, you know, they eat the fish and then their saliva has a kind of... Um, like a fishy tang. Fishy tang. <laughs> so, so this, I mean, this is, like, this is a prime example of a dynamic. So I, I, in my head, I've eaten swallow's nest before and I'm like, there is something about it that makes an association with seafood, mm. but I don't know what it is. Yeah. And Mukta will turn around and go, well... This is why. And it's not necessarily related to anthropology as such, but it's related to kind of someone who's able to step back away from the yeah. situation of just it being a food memory and go, well, this is probably why. Um, and then it's nesty, so it has to look nesty in a weird kind of way <laughs> in my mind. Um, and, and then obviously smoked duck and fish, to me, it seems a very like natural kind of combination. Mm-hmm. I don't know why that is, but there's a smoked element of it. Um and the whole idea of food combinations within Chinese cuisine, again, has to be completely recalibrated for the Western palate anyway. Um, and, and the best way I like to describe this is a stir-fry. I mean, you know, you go to any area, the chances are there'll be a stir-fry served somewhere, which yeah. is basically everything. <laughs> um, and then there'll be this hit of umami, which will basically override the whole lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether that's related to kind of pairing duck and fish <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe that's related to kind of I don't know just what is available yeah. or not but mm. but th- there is this whole kind of new network of, of, of pairings and I don't think smoked duck with fish is necessarily a very very kind of out there combination I think for me in my mind it's a very kind of natural kind of combination before I ask you about the third one, can we address the elephant in the room? Because <laughs> <laughs> somebody's just put a plate of something down yeah, in front so of me. So this is the hagel. This is the hagel. <laughs> yeah. So obviously dim sum, okay. in my opinion, it should be eaten in one go. One okay. mouthful. So when we first opened a restaurant, I tried to... In Hong Kong, there's this big uh, fad at the moment, basically. Who can make the biggest dim sum? I, like, I don't know why it is. So some people make like these massive dim sums. And when we first opened, I said, like, okay, let's make a really big one. And then I, I, I kind of lost track of what it was about. It, it is about one single mouthful. Um, okay. Let's give it a go. Yeah. Shall we? Come on then. Let's crack on. Mm. This is a, this is, sorry listeners, you'll have to, in fact, let's pause it. Bear with me listeners. We'll be right back after this lovely interlude. <laughs> yeah, why not? So that, wow. Welcome back. Oh, I've just broken mine. Let me fix my microphone. Sorry. Wait there. That was a sorry. We're back from our delicious interlude. That was amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, there's a so we're talking about the vinegar foam that was on the mm, the dish, and that's again. quite that's mm. quite important, right? Mm. So yeah, I mean, vinegar's been um, an accompaniment in in all sorts of tiny Chinese dishes, especially like um, small bites like this for centuries. I mean, um, we're talking about. I mean, vinegar was invented. Well, it, nobody really knows how early vinegar was invented in China, but we're talking about several um, millennia. And so yeah, and it's interesting because as Andrew was saying, vinegar in China and in Japan they're based on grain, right? So um, a lot of the vinegars are rice in in Japan actually. It, it's only rice. But in China, actually, you get all sorts of other types of grain, you know, barley, millet, sometimes in the same type of vinegar. And there's all sorts of beautiful vinegar cultures from um, China, aren't there? There's like four, at least four that have been imported out of China into the West, you know, Shanxi. Uh, um, oh, I can't remember. Oh, gosh. Anyway, there's, there's quite a few. Sorry about that. out of, the, <laughs> of your course. There's quite a few. What one did you use on that one? This is rice vinegar. Rice right. Vinegar. It's clear what rice vinegar And it vinegar. just gave that sharpness to the exactly. dish. It really just elevated the seasoning on it as well. And, and also vinegar in a Chinese ingredient. I don't... Do you get this in other cultures where people drink it straight? No. <laughs> not in a certain... Do you? 
When I was a kid, I really loved the Just drinking of, vinegar. I mean, I wasn't supposed to, but I did really enjoy it. It's medicinal, though, isn't yeah. it? That's what it is. It's you supposed can, to deliver. You, you mean you can buy little vials yeah. of, of um, aged vinegar, mm. of these Chinese vinegars, that are really, really expensive. They're really kind of mm. like premium, premium products. Um, from certain regions, right? That's what I was from trying to remember. I would imagine some of them would be from the, the alcohol regions, no? Shanxi then, and maybe some other... But yeah, and and they are premium, premium, top dollar stuff. Um, it's, yeah. That's like a digestive or something like that, maybe. Or a cure-all, really. Yeah, um, medicinal, completely yeah, medicinal. Yeah, yeah. For, for I can imagine it in that, like, to almost like settle you. Mm. But, so I can... I can I can imagine that. Like an ev- it's almost like an everyday sip, isn't it? I'd say. Yeah, I mean, it's a tiny vial, no more than about um, 25 mil, and you Big drink shot. it every day. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Right, beats yeah. doing Jaeger shots, I guess, or something like that. Well, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like yeah. Red Bull back in the day yeah. for Thailand, didn't it? Before it became a sports drink, it was basically a tiny tonic. So a tiny tonic. I like the sound of that. <laughs> but, but coming back to the, the thing about the lack of citrus, but yuzu comes from China, doesn't it? Yuzu, I I don't know actually, um, but there were lots of citrus fruit being um, used in certain China. I mean, like with the Mon- uh, Mongolians, you know, the Genghis Khan and all. You know, I mean, they brought a lot of citrus fruit in to um, Chinese cooking when they came in the 1100s. So there are there is a um, yeah. citrus tradition it's just that it hasn't always seeped into every corner of China and it doesn't always last in the historical record. But there's lots of lemon peel and things like this. You know, those Mongolian recipes that I shared with you. Really different, aren't they? They're very Eurasian, right? Um, but still, that that's also seeped into some northern cultures. Yeah, there, there seems to be this kind of direct substitution between what we, what some people would use in Western cuisine, mm. um, what, what some people would use fruit in Western cuisine for, mm. and in, in kind of Chinese cuisine or of what we look into, they use vinegar instead. Um, another example that would be like a Shanghai dumpling. Like to this day, people mm. dunk it in a whole saucer full of mm-hmm. ginger infused vinegar. Yeah. But you know what is the feeling? It's pork. You know, in a Western cuisine, what would you pair pork with? You pour it with you pair it with like kind of a citrusy fruit. Yeah. Mm. Um, whatever it might be, whether it be apple or Shop, be, you know, yeah. that kind of pecan note to, to counterbalance the fattiness. And um, I used to ask why? What, why do people dunk these Shanghai dumplings into this this vinegar? Um, because when you when you douse it that much, actually, you lose a lot of flavour. Mm. But actually, if you break it down, go okay. This filling is made out of pork jelly, which is made out of concentrated pork stock, with a load of more pork added back into it. Actually, you need that that element of of, of kind of sharpness in order to break through the fat. Awesome. Can we uh, move on to your third dish that's on your menu? Sure. Is that okay? So the third dish... Just eating lots of lovely food. Uh, the, the third <laughs> dish, is going to, the next one that's going to come down is a, a tofu dish. So the tofu dish is... It's, it's not anthropology related at all, but it, it's, a, it's a memory. So if you... Back in the day, if you're in Sichuan, or especially in Chengdu, there'll be like grandmas walking down the street with um, a stick over their shoulders with two buckets on either end. Uh, one of them contained uh, warm tofu that they just made and then the other one with a load of condiments whether it be like chilli oil soy sauce um, pickled greens preserved vegetables uh, peanuts so it's like um, it's it's like a tofu buffet um, <laughs> and these old ladies would, would be walking down the street shouting out Dolphin Fa Dolphin Fa which means silken tofu and you stop them and then they would serve it fresh for you it's like fresh curd 
with all these condiments on top. It's like the original street food vans. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and and it, 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 again, it's a very clear food memory for me, and it very much reminds me of being in that particular area. And it, it's an iconic dish from mm. that area. Um, and it, funny enough, being on the menu here for the past five years, it's, it's the one dish where people actually take note of quite regularly and go, wow, I never used to like tofu. Mm. Um, and then they they really enjoy it. And I, th- I think the reason is because it's very very kind of powerful on flavour. Mm. You know, there's citron pepper there, there's soy there, there's fermented greens there, there's peanuts. Um, it, it's like a warm salad of mm. of niceness. I think one of the things that is like almost like a running theme so far as well. It's something that I'm certainly aware of in those sort of cooking, Asian cooking, Chinese cooking is it's about balance. It is the balance between the, the sweet, the sharp, the saltiness, the, and I, I guess that does that kind of go level across all the cooking that you do? I think if you take spiciness out of it, then yeah, because obviously there are some regional cuisines where, which are meant to be a little bit spicier. Yeah. Um, and I think when growing up as a chef, I remember the, I used to do like competitions and people used to say, oh, the balance wasn't quite right. The balance of flavours this, the balance of flavours that. And it's only recently I've realised, you know what? I think they were wrong. I think Chinese food is meant to be harmonious, but this idea of balance is, again, arbitrary. Citronese dishes, some of them are meant to be spicy. Well, let's not try to balance it out with something. It's meant to make you sweat. (laughs) Um, It's meant to give you... (laughs) Oh, oh, I won't yeah, say it. Flush you out. <laughs> yeah, um, you know. So, so again, it, it's regionally specific. Mm-hmm. And and the one thing I always remember about Sichuanese food is it's hot. It is hot, but it's that kind of flashing hot. It's not that lingering spiciness that that you end up carrying away with you for the rest of the day. It's like bam, you're sweating it out. It's addictive. You're constantly powering through this dish. And afterwards, like 10, 15 minutes later, it's gone. Um, and then the other thing I remember is that there's always a lot of red oil. So, you know, when I was learning to cook citrus food, the chef was teaching me, he kept, kept saying, um, add red oil, add red oil, add red oil to it. So that if you look at a lot of citrus dishes, there's that really, really thin layer of red oil that sits on top of most of the dishes. And you would expect it to be greasy. Because again, with Chinese food, you have a, a slight mental association between things that are oily, things that are unhealthy, things that are greasy, and it kind of negative connotations. But all Citronese food, even with that layer of red oil over the top, they never tasted greasy and they never tasted unhealthy. It always tasted really clean and really kind of... Um, what's the best word? Flavoursome. Mm. Yeah. yeah. And I think tofu, obviously, is a massive Chinese ingredient. Right. Mm. Yeah. It's, it's so important mm. for the Chinese cuisine, right? That's then. right, yeah. It's been around for since Tang times as well, so another 1,400 years or so. But actually, soybeans have been around for ages, right? So yeah. soy sauce is actually quite mod- modern. Yeah. I'm doing um, floating quotation yeah, marks. Yeah. Um, uh, in that, you know, you kind of it came out sort of in the Song Dynasty, so 1100s onwards. But um, we uh, China has been using soy products for millennia before that. And, uh, and it's, it has been used as a meat substitute. So you get that. Um, 
But so when you look at when you look at that tofu dish when it comes down, you'll see that you know there's tofu, there's also soy sauce in it. There's different ways that um, that you process this same bean, in di- and it there's a kind of harmoniousness to it without it having to be about balance, without having to be something very practical like that. Oh my god, um, here it is. Here it is. Yeah, um, that looks amazing. And there's two types of soy sauce. There's one which is a double fermented soy sauce. And another one, which is a flavoured soy sauce. And I think people always forget that the soy sauce is just a base flavouring. Mm-hmm. Actually, even within lots of different regional Chinese cuisines, we flavour the soy sauce. We infuse the soy sauce before we use it. So you might infuse it with dried shiitake mushrooms. Or you might infuse it with citron peppercorns or bay leaves or cardamom or, or cassia bark to basically um, modify the soy sauce to a specific uh, recipe that you want to use it for. But again, in the West, there's all... I, I don't know. I don't know many people who would go and you get their soy sauce and then infuse it with something mm. else. But, you know, you look at oils or olive oils now, you go, even if you pop to the supermarket, you'll see it in hundreds of different forms. Olive oil infused with this, olive oil... And it's no different with soy sauce. You know, in the restaurant, we have maybe, like... Not that many at the moment, on our menu. Probably about five or six different soy sauces. Mm. Um... As in, some are some start off differently. So some are just uh, fermented, some are double fermented, um, and then we 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 customize them to what we need them for. But is is having that knowledge and having that sort of variety of things that people are familiar with, but it's taken to the next level? Is is that kind of what you think is is the way to sort of push you forward as a restaurant? I think. You know, they, I mean, ultimately, all we do is we try to create food that is delicious i think there's, there's not really anything more to it than that um the choice of ingredients and why do we do some of this stuff is to try to make the food more delicious um the inspiration of why some of those decisions are made come from a variety of, of different angles Mukta, of course supplies one channel of this inspiration in in going well have you ever thought about this or um did you know that here this happened or or back then people used to use it in this um with regards to this or with regards to that and, and that is actually the, the important part as a chef in, in constantly keeping the cuisine evolving for the restaurant mm. should we have a should we have a food break again let's do it um i will go and see genius <laughs> we can talk about the next dish then ahead of its arrival um so you chose a mung bean dish is that right the the mungbean is the swallow's nest. That's the swan. Uh, yeah. Apologies. So, what is the next dish then on your menu? The next dish we're gonna do uh, the chung fan, the gailan chung fan. The gailan chung fan. This historical one. So th- this is one of those ones where when Mukta sends me something and actually I just interpret it in any way, shape, or form that I like because it's so vague the recipe mm. that it's so open to interpretation. And there's one thing I remember that Mukta used to always say that Andrew, these recipes aren't gonna be like highly informative. Mm. Um, and how you choose to um, create them is the interesting part. Mm. And I think anthropologists, obviously, they're not chefs. So when I think you know, and anyone, if I was to say to you, smoke chicken oil with um, some form of greens, I think that you'd have a very kind of particular mm. visual of what you think that might be. Um, but as a chef, you know, we, you know, we have a lot more tools and we have a lot more experience in, in, in kind of possible ways of, of creating or reinterpreting 
that sentence. Um, so I think that's, that's the interesting part in, in this synergy between um, an anthropologist so and where, where had you found this one then? Where had you found this? This was in the in same... The recipe. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the same um, 1754 um, list of dishes given to the emperor. So bear in mind, there's he's having a light lunch... <laughs> is, um, there's 14 different dishes. A few of them are desserts, um, and and one of this dish crops up. So I think the the name of it is smoked chicken fat and Chinese cabbage. So when Andrew says there's a there's a certain vision. So if you have eaten in China, you expect cabbage to be pretty much you know. Um, uh, steam till it's soft so that it forms some kind of layer over something and you can probably imagine that the chicken fat is a flavouring, possibly there's tiny slivers of something inside and, and there's something else in it. So basically you're thinking, okay, this is probably half the dis- real description anyway and so giving that to Andrew, I'm thinking you know, it's it's a, it's a jumping off point. All of these recipes and all these names of dishes are jumping off points and um, actually it's it's been created by one chef at one time during this day and he's probably going to change it the next day. We just don't know because we don't have the next day's menu. Yeah. So when I give it to Andrew, I'm always saying, you know, here. Fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and if you need, you know, and, and then I try and fill in the gaps if there's any more questions about presentation or what it might have looked like. But ultimately, it's an inspiration, isn't it? Really? It is. I think that's the homage to... to, to the chef aspect of this whole dynamic you know shit you know not every recipe is meant to last for three or four thousand years yeah. sometimes it is these are the ingredients that are available to us yeah and then we use that as our inspiration to create something yeah. uh, and it's that practice where sometimes you get dishes that will last two or three thousand years um but like it, hagao right like hagao exactly and mm. um, but I, th- I think it's this dynamic where which is interesting which is mm. basically this piece of information which is obviously cult- culturally s- steeped in in history um and then i'm just taking a very very kind of fluid loosely structured sentence and then just running with it uh, who knows so what i want to do if it's okay we'll talk we'll, we'll talk about your last dish now because i'm also conscious what i want to do is i want to talk about how you're kind of working together now and kind of what's next so if we talk about the last dish and then we can talk about how you guys are, are sort of working together is that all right sure awesome so will you tell us the last dish to make your menu so the last last dish is a is a i don't want to call it crispy beef i want to call it crispy protein because the original dish apparently was a crispy lamb dish oh right right um um and uh it's, oh my God, it's coming now legend has it is that the empress dowager uh, she really enjoyed this dish in the Forbidden City. Um, Mokta disagrees uh, <laughs> that it, it was her favourite dish. But I just like the idea that a dish that, in my mind, when someone describes it, just sounds like this modern interpretation of, or this this very old interpretation of crispy beef mm. that you get from every takeaway. Yeah. Um, so, so the recipe is basically just kind of battered protein which is then um, served with sponge sugar and fruit uh, and in, in my mind it's very clear that to me that means crispy chilli beef yeah. uh, <laughs> but I do like the fruit aspect of it I, I do like the fruit and, and the dish is always going to be a little bit sweet anyway um, and I think that the fruit adds a little bit of sweetness yet it adds a little bit of um, acidity to the dish which is quite nice for when, it, when it is effectively deep fried 
What have we got then? What's this in front of me now? So this is this the birds. Is the this is the nest. Oh wow! Okay, I could I could have probably guessed that. We'll be back after I eat this delicious thing in front of me. <laughs> um, so it's very different dried, obviously, right? Yeah. So I mean, I've never. I don't think you can eat it dry. Can you, you? can't. No, like, it's be, impossible. Like eating, yeah, it'd be like eating like rice has been dehydrated like this is where we disagree I think because okay. um, it's one of those things where unfortunately because Chinese food history and possibly Chinese well food history definitely you can say a lot about you can say a lot of things about a lot of things right and um, uh, you know you kind of want to back it up with some kind of facts you want to be able to see it in the records and um, so sometimes you'll pick out a bit of a, a factoid from somewhere else and then it, it, you run with it right and um and often I don't have, sometimes I don't have the wherewithal to verify or anything like that. And sometimes you're not even asking me to do that, are you? You're just saying, this is, this is what could happen with this dish. And I'll be like, yeah, that sounds brilliant. Um, but yeah, so sometimes we do disagree about like just how accurate somebody else has portrayed a certain dish that Andrew might want to tackle. Um, but yeah. It's, it's still friendly bands, isn't it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. And it's just about having a conversation. Mm. So is it important that it feels real to you? If you see what I mean. I'm pretty good at convincing myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I think I, with most things for Chef, I think people sometimes people bang on about the end product, but actually the end product isn't always the most important thing. It's the mm-hmm. journey. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of the stuff we do with together is very much about the journey more than the end product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the end product, obviously, it's... Um, it's like a snapshot of all the work that goes in behind it but that will evolve but it's the constant um, dialogue that we have which which is the richest part of this whole thing whole process um, and I like to compare it to like when, when chefs like to try to make their own hams and stuff I'm very pragmatic as a chef and you know I'm not going to lie I don't care who you are as a chef you're never going to make it as good as Mr. Iberico <laughs> like, I'm not going to lie the thousands of years worth of expert you know 100% the sole purpose of their entire family trade is making these hams you are not going to make it that good in South London or North London <laughs> in the bottom part of your larder it's just not possible but that's irrelevant the, the actual ham that they're serving isn't important what is important is the process in learning about how to make that ham and looking into Iberico and how they make those hams and the, the pigs that they use and the diets that they're on and the history that the, the, the historical changes that have been made to the process um, in making a ham or how it's been modified to suit a particular time in Spanish history or and it's exactly the same with what we do I think it, it, it's the same thing um, you know but the only difference is the end product there is nothing to compare it to you know the end products that we're describing you know there is no kind of the Mr. Iberico of that dish, like this swallow's nest dish. There is nothing, you can't eat this dish somewhere and go, oh, well, this is what they meant, or mm-hmm. this is how it's meant to be. The, you know, I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing, mm. um, but, but you know, it is very much the dialogue being the most important part. Mm. So let's talk about what's coming up next then for you guys. I think you were mentioning there was going to be a, some talks that you were going to do. Um, Let's just let this... We've got more food coming down. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so tell us a bit about the talks that you've got coming up. 
So, yeah, I suppose it's a bit like um, describing our process a bit more. Um, so, yeah, you know, uh, if you ask any China food historian, basically there's, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all working from a certain seven or eight translations, whether they're um, archaeological digs from tombs or, um, you know, um, at Confucius Analects and things like this. There are literally, I think, um, you know, ongoing translations of other texts, maybe 30 or 40 in the running. So there's plenty of material out there. But I think academics have talked to each other to death about it, really. So what's really interesting for me going forward is to work with a chef on this, because actually, I think Andrew's one of the few um, that are tackling this historical material in a way that's practical Mm. and bringing certain tastes and ideas to life to to sort of reconnect us with old... um, traditional um, products that are being made in China and in, in all the old ways, like the tofu that you were talking about, and sort of making us think, consider these products as very beautiful in the same way that we would think about Japanese products, but where you need skill and time and patience and all that kind of Zen stuff happens in China too. And he's kind of reconnecting us back to those types of traditions. So I, I'm excited about that too. And so if I can talk about it more, I will, because uh, any any opportunity to talk about that process is brilliant. And the best place to find out about where the talks are, is it host online? Is it on your website? We're really good at promoting our <laughs> <laughs> We have no idea. You have no idea. <laughs> oh. We'll get the official line. Yeah. Yeah, so they're doing a talk next Sunday at Sunday okay. Papers Live. Okay. It's in Camden. Awesome. Um, I can send you that would be great. All of the official yeah. details for that. But, but I think I think the important part to not to forget about this dynamic is that it's meant to be fun at the end of the day. Yeah. It's not a And it has been that. It, it's not meant to be kind of like really kind of sterile. It is, you know, we don't sit in a lab and troll through books and have a laboratory where we test this stuff out. It's just a constant kind of like thing where it's a it's interaction with a running live kitchen and and it, it's a constant kind of just a manipulation of previous stuff and it, it's constantly moving all the time um, and I think sometimes when people think about chefs working with academics I think there is this it's very easy to think that this that there's this almost it's not cooking anymore it, it's more like um, what research or something yeah mm. but it's not this, this is just trying to make anthropology a four-dimensional subject um, where there's actually taste involved in, in, as opposed to just kind of like reading about p- mm. people and, and, and rituals and, and foods that they might eat. Um, all I'm trying to do is basically go, well, all this stuff does exist. I'm not arguing about it, but this is what it might taste like. Mm-hmm. Mm. Awesome. Listen, this has been an amazing chat. How interesting as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for your hospitality. Thank you actually bringing some of the food down. Uh, obviously this restaurant is somewhere that I've been aware of for quite a while I mentioned to you before that it was recommended to me by James Close so you know that you're being recommended by good people when he recommends somewhere um, and obviously what I'll do is I'll link to all the stuff that you guys are doing together Mukti do you have somewhere that your research is held? I think so yep yep but online somewhere so awesome we'll find that and we'll put that out there Brilliant, as well thank you. thank you both so much thank what a you. pleasure cheers thank you very much thanks again to the wonderful series partner Chef Works. Check them out on social media. Just search at ChefWorks UK and Ireland on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Hashtag ChefWorks wearers to feature or get in touch if you want to appear as the chef of the month.